Hello there, Podwalkers, and thanks for listening to the show. You're listening to episode three of the Goblin Lore Podcast, the second of our two-part episode, originally intended to be one episode, on the discussion of trauma in the multiverse. In the previous episode, we discussed the effects of trauma on people in real life, on some of the differences in the actual medical diagnoses of trauma, and some of the characters' backstories and how these planeswalkers have started to spark because of trauma. We also discussed Michelle Rapp's article on trauma as seen through the lens of Gideon when he sparked himself. We continue this episode by breaking down the trope of heroes being born or forged through trauma and traumatic experiences and what that means for us as consumers of media, for us as players and readers of Magic Story. And then we wrap up with a little bit of lighthearted banter as we get to our mailbag questions and some general nonsense. We think this is an important conversation, which is why we've talked so much about it though. Not enough weight is given to mental health and there's still a stigma in the world. We see it as one of the things we're trying to do as approach conversations like this in a safe, interesting, and fun way. And we think magic can be a vehicle for that. It's our genuine desire to help make even one person's world a slightly better place through this podcast. That's truly what we are trying to do. It's for that reason that I'm really sad today. As I'm recording this intro, uh, it is Friday, June 29th. The past two days have been really awful on Magic Twitter. A couple days ago, we had somebody, a prominent writer for a major Magic the Gathering website use a derogatory slur about women. When confronted about it, there wasn't as much an apology as there was a deflection. It's something that we want to talk about in the future on this show. But on top of that, it hits kind of home to us here on Goblin Lore that yesterday Michelle Rapp was suspended, possibly permanently, from Twitter for refusing to just deal with the trans-exclusionary radical feminists or TERFs on Twitter and a bunch of angry and hateful people mass reported her and got her banned. For those of you that don't know Michelle or her content or her work, just tune back into the second episode and hear it. It is not the work of somebody who breeds hate, who espouses violence, who is unnecessarily decrying somebody or trying to just make a stink. She's not a whining snowflake. She's not a bad person by any means. She's not worthy of a ban on Twitter. Her voice needs to be amplified and needs to get to as many people as possible. And it is a huge, huge shame and a huge shadow over today for me personally and for the content of this show for sure that she's not on Twitter right now. Um, and the kind of hateful things that are said to her that she was resisting, that she was pushing back against and defending people, that those things are allowed to still exist. So the, I'll end this intro by just saying it's been a rough couple of days, but hopefully this episode can provide a little bit of light for you. We still talk about a serious issue, but maybe we do it in a little bit more of a, a enjoyable and goofy way this time around. So kick back, dig in, and I hope you enjoy. And please remember, you're out there to make the world a better place. So with that, um, I want to toss it over to you, Alex, and, and have you talk a little bit about the the trope of, of trauma as it relates to heroes and stories, and specifically, you know, why do we see so many of our neo-walkers, so many of our planeswalkers in the current magic multiverse sparking through trauma? Real yeah. quick, before we move on to a different topic, and you can move this around or anything, I just got to bring a lighthearted moment to this kind of, or just, I don't know, bringing it back to the interesting part where I see how 
real world fiction can come into wizards especially the fact that the irregulars are a group of street urchins is a direct hearkening back to sherlock holmes oh really i see i thought of his oliver so, twist so um sherlock holmes in the i mean it may go back so i guess theoretically i don't know the way i remember it is there were the baker street irregulars who were a group of street urchins urchins that Holmes used as basically intelligence agent agents in his like there's they're in at least four or five different of the books where he like gives them a prize and pays them to get clues for his investigations. That's incredible. Just a, because they can blend in and they could be kind of not seen. And uh, so just seeing that that was and, and like I said, it may go back to Oliver Twist, too. But the idea of the, these irregulars and then bringing that exact terminology into um the what was that origins i just remember seeing it on cards and not really kind of thinking about it until now that's awesome i think that shows how wizards is um they really pay attention to kind of the storytelling things around them and that they they know how to incorporate elements from other stories to help tell their stories and to make them stronger which I think segues nicely into a conversation about tropes, because that's kind of what those are. Um, the it's it's a term that I believe, well, became popular at least that I knew from the the website TV Tropes. Um, are you guys familiar with TV Tropes? Yes, love it. Joe, is that a site that you've spent far too many hours on, like me? A hundred percent. I love looking up uh, old Looney Tunes TV tropes, actually. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's, it's, it's well, I think, wonderful website. It's, it's a wiki that I, I like to describe it as a, a catalog of storytelling devices. That's kind of the best way I've come up with to describe what a trope is to someone who hasn't heard the term. Um, it's all sorts of character devices and story devices and they break down all manner of media your movies your tv shows anime comics and you find these common elements sometimes used very differently from each other but they are still some similar elements of storytelling across many different media across many different nations of of humans telling different stories and um this particular trope the um as as tv tropes describes it traumatic superpower awakening is a trope we see a lot it, it's it's fairly common like uh, i don't know fairly common but it shows up a lot in stories where there is otherworldly uh powers like a planeswalker spark or for instance x-men um gene gray is a character that had According to TV Tropes, I'm not that familiar with comic books, so I'm speaking just from what they have here. But they said that Jean Grey first used her powers when her friend Annie got hit by a car and died in her arms. That is a very good example of a traumatic event happening. Um, and I think one of the reasons we see this show up a lot, stories in, in all sorts of stories are ways for us to understand ourselves and our experiences and the world around us um, they, in a way that is separate from us, in a way that feels safer because they can be removed from us as individuals and placed in a, in a different context. That is why um, a, a lot of, a lot of people will defend like fantasy writing. There's, there's some literary people who think that that's a little, uh, reductivist it's it doesn't capture real things but often fantasy and science fiction and other fantastical elements and stories are good ways to talk about very dense very difficult political conversations or traumatic events in a way that's separate from the individuals involved so that we can examine these events without feeling too close and without it becoming too painful potentially this could be a much longer story than I'll make it, but my senior year, we did a performance of the play Spring Awakening. And for those of you that don't know the play, essentially what it is, is an exploration of coming of age for children in um, turn of the century Germany. And they deal with a lot of taboo issues in it. They deal with, you know, sexuality and sexual awakening. That's really where the title comes from. Um, they deal with 
violence, they deal with death, they deal with suicide. There's a lot of severe topics in there. And we were high schoolers, you know, doing this play. Um, and at the end of every play, we had a talk back about, you know, the issues. If the audience wanted to ask any questions or say anything about it and discuss, we would, we would discuss because we wanted it to be unpacked. And one woman that stood up after the opening night performance and proceeded to tell us like a 45 minute long story actually about her life and it probably wasn't 45 minutes, but like a 10 minute long story about her life and how she had gotten involved with drugs and she had had a child as, a, as you know, a teen, um, how she had an abusive relationship, how she had been left and abandoned by her family and, you know, disowned. And she goes through this whole thing and we were all in tears. But she said at the end of that, she's like, I just saw a sign for this outside. I don't have a kid in this play. I don't, I've never been in this school before. I just came in because it seemed like the right thing to do. And I've never told this story to anybody before in my life. I've never said anything about it to anyone. And for me, that moment where she opened up to a crowd of 150 strangers is exactly the reason why art and specifically stories, you know, are so amazing, you know, and so that's why we have these tropes because she, you know, she felt able to deal with all the issues from the play that she'd experienced because they were characters in a play dealing with those issues. It wasn't her reliving those experiences. Mm -hmm. And that, as a very quick aside, I hope, goes to something that I've, I've always found interesting and, and kind of paradoxical that it's it's a writing thing you would you would think that if you're writing a story you want it to be as universal as possible to appeal as, to as many people as possible but really the stories that appeal and uh, people are able to connect to are personal stories so if you can write a story that's very personal to yourself more people will engage with that even if their experiences are different than yours because they i i, I think they're feeling the personal and they can see the they can see the real things happening in your story and make connections to theirs, even if they're very different, as opposed to when you're trying to sanitize it to make it universal, you lose a lot of that character and you lose a lot of the, the things people can actually engage with. They don't have a handhold to get a hold of that story. I mean, just, yeah, in general, the, the whole concept of tropes, they it generally has that idea that this at this point, it's something that's overused. Right. I mean, that's why it becomes a trope is because we see it as overused. But when you speak to kind of the fact that there's a universality to it, all of these things are things that that work in some ways for what they're trying to do. It's the execution of them that becomes where it either falls flat or it doesn't feel realistic. It just feels like it was done for the purpose of doing it. Yep. Which I think and brings us back just as a aside to like the whole concept of. Gail Simone talking about fridging, which I don't know if you, if people know what that is. Basically killing off a character just for the sake of, it's like violence against a character or killing off a character for the sake of making the hero become the hero yeah. or have a reason. And, and where that term comes from is, is like actually kind of horrific. Yeah. It, it refers to usually women characters being put into like refrigerators, right? Yeah, I, I can't remember the first example, but from what I heard, it, it was a comic book character whose significant other, um, who was a woman, he literally found her in a fridge, killed yes. and put in a fridge. And the character, the, the female character in the story had never been developed as anything other than to be there as basically a prop for the person's development. Which is yet another trope in a lot of stories. And thank goodness we have seen a lot of walking away from that consciously, I think, in Magic Story of late. Yeah. And it's th tropes are things to be aware of. They're, that's why I like to call them tools, because you can misuse a tool or you can use a tool properly. And both times you use the same tool, but once it was used right, once it was used wrong and didn't work as well. Uh, my, my favorite show 
which I'll give, I don't want to go too, on too long about, but uh, is the show Community. And the creator, the writers of the show talk about how they literally would go to TV tropes and read about these tropes because then when they're like, well, when we're going to tell this story of a zombie episode, we want to make sure we understand how this story has been told so that we know if we if we want to use those same story beats ourselves or if we want to subvert those story beats. But they walked in very intentionally knowing how those stories work so that they can break it where they want to break it for themselves or follow it where they want to follow it. And I think that's one of the reasons I love that show so much. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I did not know the history behind that, but it was always fun to me watching that show where they basically each episode almost was a play on a trope and and i think one of my favorite ones to kind of deal with that is kind of the like it's like they 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 do a horror movie one and basically they still are following the idea of horror movies while spinning it or doing it in a new way yep this is this, this is actually a topic i could talk about for hours so i'm just going to yeah, so let's let's segue this back to magic. So yeah. in, in, in reading this, I found you know we we've talked about Gideon who who sparked through a traumatic experience. I actually have a list of of at least four other planeswalkers who also sparked through traumatic experiences. Um, two of these are fairly recent in the story, and I think you guys will know them. So Liliana's backstory, you guys familiar with hers? Yep. Yeah, let's break it. Yeah, let's break it down a little bit for the listeners, though, too. Um, so Liliana's backstory is that her brother became very ill. Uh, this was a long time ago um, on Dominaria in the Caligo forest. Um, and her brother became very ill. And so Liliana was a healer and she went out looking for a remedy and couldn't find anything until one day the Raven Man uh, appeared to her this this apparition who we've now seen has continued to appear to her over time uh promising her this cure um so she tried this cure tried the spell that he taught her and instead what it did is it consumed her brother josu and turned him into a zombie and you know that moment where she became responsible not only for her brother's death but her brother's conversion into a I got echo um, where she became not only responsible for her brother's death, but her brother's conversion into a monster that, you know, is where she sparked and planes walked away. And then um, another, actually, so that also was, was told like Gideon's during the, the origins. Um, Chandra was another one that also was told during, during origins. Um, she is a pyromancer on Kaladesh where that's frowned upon. Just being a pyromancer was, was kind of illegal. Um, so her family and her parents were also involved in the illegal trade of Aether, but they, uh, they were on the run or they, they were in a village. I don't have the name of the village here, but where eventually some people caught up with them and captured Chandra and brought her to be executed as a criminal, as a pyromancer. They burned the village and blamed it on her. And during the execution was right when they were about to execute her was when her spark ignited. She burst with flames in the arena. And then she showed up on, uh, at Regaltha, the world where she uh, eventually she joined this monastery of other pyromancers. Which, to be fair, is the most hilarious concept in the world to me, so monastery of pyromancers. Come on. Yeah. Like, there's, yeah. Th- come on. They're burning stuff <laughs> down every single night. The most, they're, they're the most peaceful bonfires you've ever had. It, yeah, it's a mindful experience of bonfires. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and going back and actually reading her story, because it came out a couple of years ago, uh, according to this date stamp, June 10th, 2015, um, I'd forgotten. So she plans to walk there and ran into these monks. Then in her panic, she tried to set them on fire. And apparently because they're pyromancers, they just kind of stood there for a second, weren't really hurt by it. And they're like, all right, come on, we got the temple this way. <laughs> I mean, sorry, it's just like the, the hilarity of that is like, 
you just try to set some people on fire and they happen to be monks who s set things on fire. I mean, that's good timing. That's no good kidding. Timing. That's, that yeah. is exactly the kind of people you want in your corner. Yeah. yeah. Powerful and forgiving. So yep. she was, had a very traumatic event that led to her sparking, but luckily she didn't planeswalk to, you know, a merfolk place where she at least ended up with pyromancers that were monks. Yeah. Which might be something to go down into a new episode, but they have talked about, especially during Origins, it was talked about that a planeswalker's first planeswalk is often to a plane that fits them or somehow fits with where they're at. That's why Liliana went to Innistrad for her first planeswalk. Wow. I didn't, I actually didn't know that bit of lore there. It, that So something in the way that they're, their psyche is attuned, sends them to that, that plane. I think, yeah, in a way, to poeticize it a little bit, maybe that that world calls to them because there's some something there that fits with where they're at. Well, and, and there is another Neo-Walker, too, who does have a traumatic experience that causes his spark, and that's Jace. Yeah. And Jace, if, uh, you know, for the listeners, if you don't know... Uh, Jace's whole backstory is that he was trained as a telepath by uh, the Sphinx uh, Alhameret on his home plane of Vryn. And the thing is, though, is, is Alhameret saw the power that Jace had and saw the potential that he had and continually kept wiping Jace's memory and fracturing Jace's memory and burying his memories. And so literally... You know, we had, uh, we, I mean, we had uh, specifically intentional trauma done to Jace's psyche in that story until the point where Jace's, I, I don't remember exactly how it panned out, but Jace's mind, oops, but Jace's mind, uh, you know, rebelled against Alhamert's intrusion at one point and fought back and forced the the mental fracturing spell back on him and broke Alhamarit's mind. And so that moment where he, in essence, killed Alhamarit is where he sparked and planes walked away. And what's uh, bringing this to back to the PTSD or just, you know, talking about PTSD here, what is kind of interesting about this is the, the mind-wiping aspect of this. Um, one of the things that is common with PTSD is actually a difficulty with being able to remember key parts of the traumatic experience. So you actually have gaps kind of in your memory for the experience or the, or the event itself. And one form of the kind of therapy for PTSD actually is kind of almost writing out a narrative of what your trauma was over and over again and kind of noticing the increased details that kind of come about by doing that. Almost using writing again to sort of take ownership of of that experience, right? You know, it's it's that moment of, you know, again, we, you know, like you said, Alex, about the tropes, you know, it's some way to understand and, and process and, and take ownership back of the narrative that happened in your life. Is that mm -hmm. kind of on and track there, Hobbs? That's actually, <laughs> I'm telling you, man, you, you may have a different career in, in mind if you, this teaching thing doesn't work out. Social justice, You're very baby. psychologically minded. Uh, it's actually, we talk about rescripting or rewriting the narrative. And if I recall, I think Jace did that, literally. Mm -hmm. That was part of how he came, that was part of how he realized what was happening is he started to record his memories and he came upon them somehow. It's, again, it's been a couple of years, I haven't read the story since then, but I believe that is what led to the uh, the actual altercation with Alhamaret was that he kind of, he'd found his own memories that he was kind of keeping track in between all these events. Because he oh, probably was having gaps in them. Yeah, no, I remember it was it was because yeah, because he he was having gaps, but he realized that because he went to he he was being used as like a diplomat, and he went to talk to a group that he had talked to previously that he had no memory of talking to them, and I think that's when he realized something was going on, and he started to use that technique to figure out what was happening. 
So Alex, I'm curious because you you know you you're taking us through this trope and with the Neo Walkers, and I, I mean maybe this is my gaps in knowledge. Do we even have examples of Neo Walkers who did not spark that we know the spark story for that did not involve trauma? I'm I'm not sure actually because now I I didn't have Jace on my list but as you're talking about it I realize not only Jace but also Nissa it's all five of the Origins Walkers that's what's happened because Nissa had a um, encounter with uh, um, oh my God I'm blanking Neil Drazi uh, Emrakul and that I, I believe some encounter with Emrakul is what caused her to spark and and go to Lorwyn. Um, and part of the no. story too is the being exiled from her community, you know. In yeah. addition, so sort of again that that thing, that event causing uh, a situational shift, something that actually affects your life. Mm-hmm. I mean, we kind of, we kind of had a joke about. We were kind of were joking about this on Twitter a couple of weeks ago. I don't. Um, it, we're, we're kind of like, we, we were giving like really just gen- people were talking about generic names for a planeswalker, and so we like joked around like planeswalker Steve, and I said he basically <laughs> sparked when he dropped his iPhone and the screen shattered. Um, but I, I mean, I guess the question becomes like I want to know at this point what sparking could look like not coming from trauma. Yeah. Because I, I think it can get very boring if it's basically this idea that something really, really bad and traumatic has to happen to you or you can't spark. Yeah, no, that's worth looking into because uh, I don't have anyone offhand that I know their story of. Um, I do have a pre-Mending Walker who, who sparked because of trauma as well, Soren Markov. Um, he apparently his backstory, which I didn't realize before I started doing some research earlier today, was that um, Edgar Markov turned him into one of the first vampires on on Innistrad, and that's how he sparked. Edgar used the technique on himself and then turned Soren into the second vampire on Innistrad, and it was such a traumatic experience that Soren sparked. And then he kept trying to recreate things by creating new things in his image that he had to unmake. Mm-hmm. Which is definitely a topic for a later episode. Yeah, as I'm thinking about it, too, I'm not sure that there are, at least of the Neo-Walkers, I'm not sure that there's anybody that sparked without trauma. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we have, I, I mean, even Venser and, you know... Kiora. Kiora was, I mean... Karn... Karn's an old walker too, but Karn was well. He's not, not he's not an old walker, right? Technically speaking, both Karn and Urza are not exactly planeswalkers. They both were borrowing. Karn is was borrowing Urza's spark. Urza, the spark he had was being borrowed from Glacian. Uh, yes, Glacian. So, um, so technically, both of them have a spark of an old walker of an old walker. And also, that both of them sparked from trauma, <laughs> like Karn and Urza. Didn't Karn end up getting like? Didn't somebody in the Mirrodin storyline then give up their spark though? Venser. Yes. So Karn has been a plains, an old walker and a neo walker with two different people sparks. Right. And and Venser gave up his spark, it, w- including his life force, in order to purge Karn of Phyrexian corruption during the whole quest for Karn's Scars of Mirrodin cycle. Um, mm-hmm. Garbage novel, by the way. Um, but the... So, also, in this moment, even in his rebirth, in his re-sparking, Karn got his spark through trauma. Mm-hmm. Wow, this is depressing me. Yeah, this is really <laughs> bumming me out. Yeah. I really need a I really need a planeswalker like Steve now at this point in my life, or I need yeah. I need Fibble th- to to spark, but like just because he got lost, but it wasn't really a trauma. <laughs> like he didn't think he was gonna die, but he was just a little scared maybe. Yeah, and maybe he sparks. He's just lost. He's wandering down alleys, and and he finally thinks he has the way home. Realizes he's at a dead end, and he just sparks. Planes walks home. Yeah, yeah. And it's not like it wasn't like it. Like I said, it didn't raise to the level of him thinking he was yeah. gonna die, but. I need that in my life right now. 
Are, are you guys okay? I'm gonna. This is a tangent, but I think it's it's a relevant story. Love it. Are you guys familiar with David Eddings, the author who wrote fantasy novels? Not at all. I've heard the name. Okay, in his novels, not to go too far, but there there are characters that are sorcerers or sorceresses, depending on. But they have a lot of power. Um, not quite neo like early planeswalkers, but they are very powerful, and most of them gain their powers through trauma something big happens but there's one character in his like the second series because he wrote five books and he wrote a second set of five who's like this old scholar who didn't realize he was a sorcerer he just like kept working the books and then one day just didn't die and realized hey i'm 500 years old and this isn't right <laughs> <laughs> see we need that that guy That's... is the yeah. everyman planeswalker that we all need you know who that sounds like to me? Just sitting around reading books for 500 years? <laughs> oh, no. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Can I take that story back? <laughs> I think that's a perfect pivot to our last segment of this show. And we, like we said, we might be splitting this up into two episodes. So bear with us, uh, those of you that are listening for your, your questions. But I think we move to the mailbag. Oh, before we did, before we do that, Hobbs, you did have a card that you wanted to talk about from Core Nineteen that got spoiled. That is your uh, a super unvorthos, apparently, and I'm not sure what this is because I haven't seen it yet. So this card is actually offensive to me from both a vorthos and a personal play level. Oh my gosh! Um, so Amulet of Safekeeping was printed today and, and and actually it's really interesting or not printed today but uh uh our friends mtg the amateur and uh, some other local minneapolis people are um maria and megan kind of spoiled this card and it is an artifact it is a two mana artifact that basically is a storm hose for no real reason that could possibly make sense to me and matthias hunt actually has a really funny or just a, a good point about like what's with these ham-fisted answers being printed we need answers within magic and it kind of he talks about it it's completely incoherent outside of we wanted to cover both of the modern storm and and by extension legacy storm game plan because what this card does is it makes a spell that targets you or an ability that targets you costs one more to cast, okay? It also gives creature tokens negative one, zero. <laughs> so basically, it, it's an anti-Empty the Warrens and an anti-Grape Shot or Tendrils of Agony if we're playing Legacy, because even each instance of Storm is going to cost me or someone one more. And then... Your goblins, if you go that route now, get less. And like the, the thing is, it looks like two abilities stapled onto a two-mana artifact. It's an amulet of safekeeping from tokens and from being targeted. When I saw this card, actually, what I, I thought of first, and, and our good friend Lily Vest tweets did tweet at us about this, um, I saw it and I thought it was a hose for Jund. I thought it was an anti-Lily of the Veil and Lily, um, the uh, Last Hope card, where no, you know, no, it's... she was talking the hosing of her of her precious zombies. Well, it, see, it does hose the zombie horde, the zombie tokens she brings out, but it does also make those sacrifice targets from the Planeswalker. I think, and maybe not, maybe with the way that they changed how Planeswalkers function. Maybe it doesn't work with that, but I thought it was uh, I thought it was a hose on the sacrifice trigger for Lily of the Veil. Well, it would make it cost one more, because it right. still is a spell or ability. It says it's targeting. It would cost one more. I mean, yeah. it, it breaks Storm, but it... Yeah. See, I think Lily of the Veil just has players, because everybody has to sack one, right? Nope. Nope. Oh, it is target. Lily of the Veil is, is target. Everybody has to discard. Oh, uh, yep, yep. So okay. the, it wouldn't turn off that. But this is just a very, this is just, being that we were talking last time at the end of our cast about, like, cards that don't feel Vorthos. I mean, maybe they're going to spin this in some story way, but it yeah. it just feels like a modern yeah. answer. The, it, it, like, and, and the thing is, I think what it's juxtaposed against is we had a new-ish Blood Moon 
spoiled this alpine of the alpine moon. the one red yeah but at least that is like it's an alpine moon it targets one land that you can name it kind of turns off the abilities from it we already have moons as kind of a thing that could fit into a story these are two separate abilities that don't tend to go together in any way shape or form within a story so as our as our resident mel alex yeah does does this work does this fit uh, that also doesn't really fit there i mean it's like damping sphere from from dominari did the same thing um it was a player was it spells cost one more for each spell that players cast this turn and uh if a land would produce more than one mana it produces a single colorless instead so anti-storm and anti-eldrazi tacked right on and anti-tron tron um yeah and it, it's a similar thing where they're just like we're just gonna staple answers to an artifact and mechanically they have nothing to do with each other there's so i think not only is it kind of offensive for the vorthos it's it's kind of uh nonsensical at least on the mel scales too um with that we've got a couple great questions that have come to us from twitter and some have already been sitting for uh, about a week or so so thank you for your patience folks um we just, you know, we needed to start up the, the pod and sort of get all that information out of the way first. Um, but now we can get to the real nonsense, which is what exactly we want to talk about. So um, this is our first one, and this comes to us from at LilyVestTweets, and it is, why is Bolus the multiverse's Donald Trump? And I will say that we just so you we are not in good standing with Miss Lily Vest currently due to a, a episode one of our cast. So we've kind of have made a pact with a planeswalker already. A I did demonic not think pact? That was, I would say that's not something I expected to be saying on episode two of our cast. <laughs> that's or true. Or three, whatever this ends up being. But we are going to be having her as a guest in a future episode. <laughs> To discuss the besmirching and especially somebody's use of uh, her described as a slave of Bolas. Yeah, I'm not sure who that could have been. Uh, points to whoever came up with that great pun, because it's a <laughs> it's a card name, too. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, in order to answer this question, actually, I I'm gonna say. I'm going to pivot it a little bit. I don't think Bolas is the Donald Trump of the multiverse because I I really think actually Belzenlock was our analog that we got in in the multiverse recently. Belzenlock was the final demon of Liliana's pact and um you know, he's he was on Dominaria and took over the Cabal, uh you know, the CD organization of black mages, uh, you know, death cult sort of thing. And what we saw with him is that he started to, over the course of a couple millennia, or at least a couple hundred years, started to warp history and take a bunch of names for himself and just lie his face off and become this, this idea of something that he wasn't. And basically everybody outside of the Cabal on Dominaria knew, but they were all getting to the point where they're all a little bit like, but, but was he actually maybe Lord of the Waste? Like maybe that one was actually his name first. And so he started corrupting, you know, people's thoughts, uh, you know, and history so much that they became uncertain of what the truth was. I would say that that, if anything, is, is the best analogy that magic has given us so far. I mean, I understand what Lily Vest is joking and I hopefully tongue in cheek with us. We'll just flat out admit when it comes to Bolas. But I would say if we're going to be going down this road, Everything we've talked about, his his plans, I think, have a depth to them that we probably are not seeing from Donald Trump. Yeah. And I love that that Belzenok example. That is a really good point. Yeah. We can we can get into politics analogs in a later episode too. I think that would be an interesting topic. Um, but you are keeping track of all these, right? Oh yeah, I've got a okay. I've got a crazy long note in my iPhone right now. Oh, good. That's what I like to hear. <laughs> um, moving on to a tweet from at G Babblemaster. What is the story behind Squeeze Toy? So does do any of you older folks remember Squeeze Toy? Yeah. 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 Aren't we using that as a logo, like stand-in kind of logo for now? Yeah, absolutely. Squeeze our logo. 
Yeah. So Squeeze and toy. his toy. Yeah, he's hugging his toy in that one. Uh, from from what I remember, like Squeeze toy is is not only a, a, a pun, but it was also an actual <laughs> card. Um, oh my god, I didn't. E- I yeah, totally you never did not. never caught that. Wow. Yeah, I Squeeze am. toy. So it's uh it's a card from the um, Wrath Cycle, not, not the Wrath in, in that era from the the Weatherlight storyline. Um, it's actually a part of the the, the legacy the weather, weapon. Like, the legacy weapon. Thank you. Yeah, it's part of the whole legacy weapon thing that was basically just this d- bunch of random stuff that Urza put on a boat from all these different <laughs> places. That is maybe another thing we should talk about. Urza's. Uh, oh God, his plans. That, yeah, yeah, his his weird plans and uh, his hoarding and all of that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, this episode of Hoarders, Dominaria Edition, we talk about Urza. I mean, literally. <laughs> I'm sold. Yeah, it's that, writing itself. Yeah, I already like, have, like, five ideas in my head. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, Squeeze Toy was a, a thing that Squee actually got. It's it's a, a toy that he hung on to because I think with all of the trauma of his life to tie into this episode... Um, he needed something that was nice and fluffy and didn't demand anything of him. Um, did we talk about his story in the last episode? We touched on it. And, and I actually, yeah, we touched on it a little bit and actually it was the toy itself that, uh, that gave Squee his immortality. And Mm -hmm. so that's partially what led to his trauma too, which is a whole other thing that we need to, that we can unpack at a later date, maybe if we've got time. We need to do a squeak cast. How yeah. is he not a How is he not a planeswalker? Uh, anyway, so yeah, he would have sparked by now. Let's say that in the story. Yeah, yeah, he would have. Maybe he's maybe he's the one that's like waiting for something really good to happen in order oh. to spark. Oh, I like that. That's my favorite right? headcanon. Oh, <laughs> that's now that's now headcanon for me. Oh. Squee is our average every guy. Yeah. Poor little buddy. Yep. Um, yeah, so that's, yeah, that's Squee's toy. And I also didn't realize it was a pun until you said that. That's fantastic. I'm so happy now. Squee's my favorite. Also amazing flavor text. Oh, yes. Do you want to read it? Yeah, so um, it's, as the horrors closed in on Gerard, Squee trembled and clutched his toy for comfort. He didn't know where it came from or why it was so warm, but he was glad to keep kept it near. <laughs> I mean, like, these horrors closing around and Squee's just, like, clutching a toy. I mean, that's, it is every man. He's so freaking cute. Squee is basically the Arthur Dent of the magic universe. Oh my gosh, Dent Arthur Dent. Yes, please. Oh. <laughs> um... Let's move on then to uh, Liberated Karn, at Liberated Karn on Twitter's question. Uh, why is Slow Bad actually Slow Awesome? Also bonus points for a pun. Love it. Um, so Slow Bad was a goblin artificer from Mirrodin. And uh, he was one of Glissa and uh, Bosch, the Iron Golems, accomplices, Golems, excuse me, I always mispronounce that S- stupid Pokemon. Um, but uh, he was one of their associates and, and he was a goblin who was exiled from his community legitimately for being too smart and being a little bit like dangerously experimental. Um, and that's saying a lot coming from goblins. And coming from <laughs> goblins on Mirrodin too. Oh, Have yeah, you true. seen that place? Holy crap. So, okay. So slow bad too. um, there is something that I am just like my mind is going back to Mirrodin's story. I'm I'm trying to look up because I just cannot. These are like this is me having always gotten glimpses of things. But he, there is something related to Glissa and his and her, and the sparking and him, right? Mm-hmm. Do you know this one, Alex? No. Okay, so Slowbad was a planeswalker. Yeah, baby, he That's had the spark. Right. Yeah. Because when Galissa died trying to um, when, when Galissa died in order to bring down Memnarch, again, trauma, and the green sun emerged, uh, the fifth son of Mirrodin, 
and also slow bad sparked uh and so you know then finally the the force field or whatever we'll talk about Mirrodin's a whole ball of wax but uh the force field that was keeping planeswalkers out that memnark the evil genius ruling Mirrodin had put up to keep Karn out, uh, who created Mirrodin, um, that evaporated. Karn came in, was like, whoa, stuff completely went upside down since I've last been here. And then he noticed Slowbad, and he was like, dude, you're alive, and you're a planeswalker. Come be my apprentice, and like, let's hop around the planes together. And Slowbad was like, but I lost my best friend, and that's screwed up, because Glissa died. And so many other people passed away too and uh karn was like well you know you can give up your spark to pull off this really big spell if you want but why would you do that when you have this much power and Slowbad was like hmm nope you know what i think i am gonna do that and he passed his spark and you know essentially a part of life force into glissa to revive her and in doing so also revived all the people who had passed away from you know the, the battle on Mirrodin and uh, all of the people that have been brought there got sent back to their home planes too. I mean, again, we have this crazy trauma thing and Slowbad is the coolest because he was like, yeah, what am I going to do with power if I don't have my best friend? And then he dies. Well, and then eventually he dies. Yeah. I mean, like shortly after, I mean, I think it's like, it's not, I mean, it's not even that long. Like he just, he gets oh, killed, right? so he does this like amazing, like, uh, like self-sacrifice thing, but in a way that he's not going to die. <laughs> he, he's not dying when that happened, but gets killed like after that. Oh, uh, that's sad. That's right. I forgot yeah. about that. But and I think that what I mean, this is one of those things that was when we ended up getting Dreddy, there was some uproar because people had wanted Slowbad to be the first like goblin walker that we got a card for yeah and Duretti was also an art you know an artifact friendly character on the right. card so and it was also done when we got people that were since dead i mean or we thought did because we got earlier versions right like that, that's yeah. when we got the planeswalkers as as commanders so we had like teferi and um Frailies. Frailies. And they had these older characters, and yet our goblin that we finally get as a planeswalker wasn't slow bad. And the one of the most caring and kind and actually intelligent goblins that we'd ever seen in the story, too. Because while yeah. Squee is awesome, he's not smart, you know? He's, he's, oh, no. a, he's a very good boy, but he is not smart. <laughs> yeah, like, like, if I'm looking into my living room right now, Watson who is my lovely pit lab mix. He's squee. <laughs> Duncan is more likely to be slow bad. Right. <laughs> There's a difference between these dogs. I love them both. They're great. One is slightly more intelligent than the other. But they're both our favorites, and that's for <laughs> darn sure. <laughs> they are the unofficial mascots of our podcast. That's true. That's true. Um, well, squeeze the official mascot. Well, exactly. <laughs> how could you have anything else? Wait, Bolus isn't sponsoring this cast? Never mind. I don't want to get us in trouble. <laughs> Brought to you by Torment of Hailfire. <laughs> um, let's move on to our final. We've, we have one other uh, question thought here uh, from Agent MLP412. Uh, and he asks for some lore about Krenko. I think we need to do a big goblin cast later on. I mean, we are the Goblin Lore podcast, uh, and it's specifically about Cranko and you know what's going down on some of these supplemental sets and the flavor and lore of those. Um, I think that is a really good idea for later. But it's it's just such an in depth story we're not prepared for right now. So we did get it. We are going to do it, but we just can't. We're not prepared at the moment. I mean. We're going to talk a lot about goblins. I just feel like there may not be a show where they don't come up because I think as much as we had a green mage, a red mage who really is green but just wanted to be different, and me, a blue mage, we all have love of goblins, I would say. I do love gobos. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. They are my win condition. <laughs> when in doubt, goblin it out. Yep. Wow. And uh, the last <laughs> the last question in our mailbag uh, comes to us from uh, at FishCastMTG, and that's Fishing, the Merfolk podcast. Love those guys. Um, that's what happened to the Vodalian Merfolk that didn't make it through the portal with Empress Galena. And so this is a reference to uh, the end of the Fallen Empire's story. And this is also a really in-depth thing. It involves time travel. It involves merfolk. It involves a really lore-heavy set that's terrible for cards and development. So that's one that we're going to have to do at a later time. But, man, Sarpedia is awesome. I'll say that right now, at least. Yeah, I mean, you've got creations turning against their creators in two different places in that story yeah there's there's some interesting stuff going on so fallen empires as i said i i mean i think i barely have ever seen and i mean the, the only thing that i remember ever seeing from it is him to torak so i just assume that the set is amazing right <laughs> well they i mean do... you've got multiple arts um, I remember back in the day, Scry Magazine, I don't know how many people listening to this are familiar with print magazines, but back in the day, there was a couple for Magic. Okay, Gavin. One of them was called Scry, <laughs> and they always, and one of the things they like to do is players would, you know, send in their, like, favorite combos, favorite combos for cards, and they'd print some of those on the back and talk about what they did, and I just remember uh, one that I saw was any card from someone sent this in and said, hey, you know, my favorite combo for any card from Fallen Empires is a card from Fallen Empires and a garbage can. <laughs> I just happened to, because I, I, I was remembering, because I would say that that is being unfair. Homelands is more garbage than Fallen Empires when it comes to cards. Oh, yeah. Oh. And I, I at least looked at the notable cards from Fallen Empires, and there are at least four. Yeah. So, well, and, and I'll tell you, as a very casual, we played in large group game player back then, the the stack lands, as we like to call them, but the the lands that would accumulate counters. Yep. It was were actually like legitimately powerful because mm -hmm. games went so long. You just throw one of those in, you leave it in play, and then you tap it for fifteen mana at some point. You have one more thing. I was just going to say that I just want everybody to remember that this podcast has been brought to you by Blue Blue, Black Black Black, Red Red. Is that a law firm? That is Cruel Ultimatum. Oh. And on that bombshell. <laughs> That's our show. Thanks again for listening to the Goblin Lore Podcast, which you can find on Twitter at Goblin Lore Pod. You can email us any questions, comments, or concerns you have at goblinlorepodcast at gmail.com. Joe Redeman can be found at Findhorn, that's F-Y-N-D Horn on Twitter. Hobbs Q can be found at Hobbs Q. And Alex can be found at Alexander New M. You can subscribe and rate our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podbean, basically anywhere that podcasts can be found. Again, thank you all for listening, and we'll catch you next week. Travel safe, Podwalkers. <laughs>